Special shout out to one of our favorite media companies at Crooked Media. While hosting brilliant podcasts like Positive America, Hysteria, This Land, Love It or Leave It, and more, they even fund the things that matter. Chip in to the No Off Years Fund to support the work of organizers in key states who are making sure all eligible voters are registered early so they don't face any problems in making their voices heard next year. Your donation will be supporting frontline efforts in Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Wisconsin, places where new voters will help make the difference in our ability to win in 2022 and beyond. I myself have donated to the cause and look forward to seeing the outreach we can create. Check out votesaveamerica.com. That's votesaveamerica.com to find out more. Welcome once again to a brand new episode of Capital C's. I'm Charles Greenley. And I'm Nathan Corkleton. Let's get right into the hill. I have some interesting news pieces today, starting with Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and her use of coronavirus relief funds to pay staffers for three months. Now, I kid you not, Governor Reynolds reportedly used nearly $450,000 in federal aid to instead pay some salaries in her office. The state auditor Rob Sand repeatedly told Reynolds that the arrangement would not get federal approval, but Reynolds did it anyway. Sand found the funds on Monday, and when Reynolds was pressed for documentation to justify the spending, she said the 21 staff members were working on the state's COVID response. However, she had no proof to back that claim. That was money for help and programs, not to fill bank accounts. The infamous QAnon shaman has been sentenced to 41 months in a hearing that has set a court precedence for court sentencing against those who took part in the January 6th attempted insurrection. The face-painted Viking spoke for more than a half hour on the impact that jail had on him and his regret for breaking the law, quoting Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and the Shawshank Redemption claiming that he wanted to live the remainder of his life like Gandhi. However, the court showed that uh, accountability will be upheld, as Chansley was one of the first to break into the Capitol, entering the Senate chamber, and leaving a note on Mike Pence's dais reading, it's only a matter of time, justice is coming. Well, Shaman, the time is now, and three and a half years of justice have finally been served. Marjorie Taylor Greene, yes, the same right-wing fanatic, is once again in the news cycle for how much money she is losing simply for not wearing a mask. Green says she is up to $63,000 in fines for not wearing a mask, which directly went against the chamber's mask requirement. That $63,000 apparently comes straight out of her paycheck as a member of Congress. She then went on to comment that she was not vaccinated and will continue not to be vaccinated. Honestly, I could care less about the money she's losing if she won't do what many people do all the time. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention has announced that more than 100,000 people died from a drug overdose from April 2020 to April 2021, a record high with a 28.5% increase compared to that of just one year ago. According to experts, the rise in the death toll, death toll can largely be attributed to the use of fentanyl and the COVID-19 pandemic. The White House commented on the ongoing narcotic problem saying that overdoses are largely being driven by fentanyl and methamphetamine being mass-produced by Mexican drug cartels sourcing drug-making chemicals from China. The U.S. Health Department and Human Services have released an overview of the White House's plan to combat the drug overdoses from addressing opioid prescription practices, removing barriers to treatments, recovery support, and federal support for harm reduction strategies, and expanding the use of naloxone, also better known as Narcan, to prevent these overdoses from happening. All right, and that's our news for the week. Um, getting right into it, um, this topic for this week, voting is important. Voting has always been important. 
voting is still important, yet we can't pass a law directly encouraging it in 2021. The real last bill to advance voting laws was in 1965 with the passing of the Voting Rights Act. In 1964, numerous demonstrations were held and the considerable violence that erupted brought renewed attention to the issue of voting rights. The murder of voting rights activists in Mississippi and the attack by state troopers on peaceful marches in Selma, Alabama gained national attention and persuaded President Johnson and Congress to initiate meaningful and effective national voting rights legislation. Essentially all this to say, when voting is challenged, there needs to be a resulting action. Nathan, what's your general thoughts on voting? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I am very firm in the belief that anyone who is a United States citizen should be allowed to vote. Uh, I believe that every legal vote should be counted. I don't think there is any precedent in any Democrat who would say that every legal vote should not be counted. Um, and I, I believe that it's the very core foundation of what makes our country our country is the right to vote. Uh, and so I think it's one of the most important issues that need to be addressed uh, facing the United States. Yeah, and I mean, the recent challenge to voting has been brought up by nearly every current real estate has come from the big lie. Something we have really yet to talk about because of its absurdity. Uh, it's had a tremendous ripple effect when it comes to voting. Most people understand that there is no such thing as voting fraud, but the idea itself created a reason for many elected Republican officials to create some very questionable standards. Uh, voter ID has been substantial, and there's been some ramping discussion of lessening the ability of absentee voting. The problem with this is that it will statistically affect minorities more than the general public. So what are your thoughts on the Republican offensive on voting? Yeah, I mean, I think from the beginning of the big lie is when we saw the downfall uh, the downfall of election integrity and people feeling confident in their right to vote. Um, it, it started from the beginning where we see in Arizona, we see people saying stop the count and in Michigan, we see people saying count every vote. Um, and, and, and so a lot of this leads back to just Republican messaging over the 2020 election. Uh, and, and the kind of fear tactics that are being used that are kind of making us question the safety of voting in 2021. So the Freedom to Vote Act fights some discrepancies in some of these ways. It expands the opportunity to vote with easing restrictions of absentee and mail-in voting. It cracks down on the ability to suppress voters, reforms the redistricting progress for less gerrymandering and bias, and possibly most importantly, it ends the ability for election sabotage that we very nearly faced this past election. What do you believe about this specific voting act? Yeah, I think this voting act is great in when it comes to addressing what is the issue in voting in 2021. Uh, much like the Voting Rights Act in 1965 did, it addressed the issues that Americans were facing when it came to, uh, to voting. And I think this one does a very similar one and it kind of takes an adjustment and takes into consideration where our society is at and how voting is progressing, especially when it comes to uh, mail-in voting and early voting, uh, how far our society has come and how we vote uh, as a country. So with that being said, very obvious, important stuff. Why is this really just not being talked about as much as it should be? Yeah, I think a lot of it is because there's the acknowledgement that there is a percentage of Americans who truly believe that the 2020 election was stolen uh, and that their vote does not matter anymore and that Democrats are behind the scenes rigging every election, uh, even though we can't even win the state of Virginia in a gubernatorial election. 
Um, and, and, and so I think that goes to show that uh, that's, that's kind of why it's not being addressed uh, on top of, you know, the ability to get it passed. We have to end the filibuster. And that's just a whole nother discussion. So specifically for the uh, Freedom Voters Act, you do you know who one of the leaders of this bill is? I hope you're talking about my dear friend from West Virginia, Joe Manchin. I am. Uh, so Joe Manchin was actually a part of the writing of the actual bill. Um, why do you think Joe Manchin would uh, toss his hat in with this? Uh, well, personally speaking, there's two ways for you to kind of look at this from Joe Manchin's point of view. Uh, one, the higher turnout that he can get in West Virginia, the better his election odds are. Um, a low turnout in West Virginia is not a good sign for Joe Manchin, point blank, period. Uh, secondly, I think it's him taking a stand for what he believes in. Um, you know, Amy Klobuchar, Raphael Warnock, um, Alex Padilla, all these people are signing on, and they're not typically people you would associate with Joe Manchin. Uh, but if Voting Rights Act is something that he cares on, of course, it's something that he's going to be a, a big advocate for. Yeah, so I'm thinking it's, it's probably part of that first reason as well, um, just because Manchin is still a Democrat um, in a somewhat nearing um, red state, because you can see just from Virginia that things can change uh, just based off of what has happened in a year. So I think that him doing it is more of a play to make sure he gets all the votes he can, um, especially from those uh smaller minority sections that usually are blue so I, I think that's what he's going for here but the freedom to vote act was brought in front of the senate in september while a less drastic john lewis voting act has more or less taken its place in early october to be a better hope in amending the current voting rights act as quickly as possible so why hasn't there been any actual movement from this bill well blame the filibuster the same filibuster where the top brass would like to change how do you feel about the filibuster yeah i i mean i think First and foremost, the filibuster is not mentioned once in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, I, I think it's, it's this overpowering rule that makes no sense. Um, you, you know, we talk about equal representation in the U.S. Senate, and the filibuster is kind of something that kind of just ends that equal representation. Uh, there's the same amount of senators from each state. Uh, most, most of the time, these states align with what their senators are, uh, whether that be a Democrat or Republican. Um, and at the end of the day, it just it doesn't make sense to have something that's not a part of what we are as an institution. Yeah, I think it's um, just a way for the the smaller section of Congress to hold the force. Um, that is the the bigger section, um, and I, I mean we talked about it before, and I think you said which was correct that, you know, it's been used by Republicans and it's been used by Democrats on either side. And depending on where you are in history, that's when you're going to use it. But uh, it definitely has some uh, problems that we've especially seen um, with things such as this or even things like uh, voting to extend uh, the, the deficit, which is insane. But, I mean, can a voting act get through while the filibuster is in its current state? I have a very hard time seeing it get through uh, without it being slashed down time and time again, uh, much like we saw with uh, BBB and, BI, uh, and the infrastructure bill, that 
it, we have to work with this Republican stronghold that's not even a majority in the Senate. Uh, and, and so it's just simply not going to happen unless they get their way. Um, and, and so I think that's kind of a leading factor that we're seeing uh, moving forward right now. And the reason why I have a hard time seeing it pass without the filibuster being ended. So we talked about Biden's um, thoughts on the filibuster from his CNN town hall uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but it has been said that publicly uh, recently that he is forward ending the filibuster if that's what it takes to get the actual voting rights act through so we can actually get some of these things that we've been working on for the past couple months um and through the congress and i think this may be a ploy to make mansion a little bit more happy um before we get into the significant bbb but uh what do you think about that yeah i think you're spot on charles um i i think right now it's kind of Everybody knows Manchin wants to see this go through. Uh, Everybody knows that the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is the one thing Manchin cares about and wants to have done before the midterms. Uh, Because as all-powerful as he is right now, uh, if he can put his name on getting major voting rights legislation through Congress, uh, then that is a absolutely massive win and massive advantage for him. And, And... on top of that is a game of give or take where we know that we need his support on BBB in order to make it happen. And, and so I think you're spot on and Biden's kind of loosening up a little bit and doing what he needs to do, uh, much like he did when he was in the Senate, to make sure that things get done. Yeah, and just to finish out this you know, first topic for us, um, I mean, what do you think is the perfect amount of yes uh, to go through a voting act, whether that be the Freedom to Vote Act or the John Lewis, um, wh- what is the one thing that you see must go through to kind of uh, help in the mood of voting in 2022 and beyond? Yeah, I, I think first and foremost, it is voter registration. Uh, it is incredibly hard to register to vote, uh, especially across various states. Uh, so if you move, for example, um, it, it becomes incredibly hard to vote. So between that, uh, voter ID requirements, it has to become easier uh, for you to show a valid ID at the polling site. And then lastly, mail-in and early voting, uh, because these are things that are being repeatedly get, uh, attacked by Republicans against for fraud, uh, when that's simply not the case. And there are many, many states that have done this before and did not have any issue, and we didn't see any issues in the 2020 election. So if I had to say, I would say that those are probably my three main points that I feel like have to get through and three things that do get addressed in the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, all three of those are definitely important. Um, I've seen some talks making those all those stricter from the right while the lesson is the left is trying to lessen them. So it's very obvious those are kind of like the differing uh, manners which we speak on when we talk about voting for right now. Uh, I also think that redistricting reform is somewhat necessary at this point, too, Um, just because the process has become so convoluted that uh, very often the legislation of the states don't really get to do it anyway, just because it goes into a court and the courts talk it out and then they figure out what's going on. But essentially, I think there has to be something done no matter what it is, um, and hopefully ending a filibuster can do that for us. Great. 
All right, we're going to go to a break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, Steve Bannon and uh, his indictment. So I am African-American, and I can tell you, I'm very intently paying attention to the Ahmaud Arbery and Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Have you paid any attention to it? Yeah, I've been keeping up with both trials um, and, and kind of watching closely to see uh, what's going to happen. Yeah, I think everyone knows more or less the Rittenhouse trial a little bit more right now, especially since I, I guess you can call it a meme at this point has been put forth where they see Rittenhouse either trying to cry or crying. I'm, we're, we're not really sure about that. Um, ha have you seen that? What were your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's been plenty of memes on Twitter of people breaking it down um, where you can see him look at the jury. Uh, you can I mean, I think it's pathetic. I think it's a lame cop out um, for him just needing to admit what he did, which is just never going to happen. Yeah. And Ahmad Arbery's case is getting, um, it was talked about a lot originally, but the trial is getting kind of the, the low light of the situation just because both of these are going on at the same time. Um, mainly because I think Rittenhouse is, is a little bit more nationally uh, skewed with it happening after um, some actual kind of rioting, if you say. But I think one of the more interesting parts about it is that the judge of Rittenhouse's case has had some things happen during the actual trial, such as a phone ringtone go off that was uh, Trump's, you know, kind of national song for his campaign. Uh, what do you think about some type of bias happening inside courtrooms? Yeah, I, I mean, with both cases, uh, even though the jurors have gone through the process, there's still going to be some type of bias, you know. Uh, I, I was listening in on the uh, Aubrey case today. And they were talking about how much the jurors are in their 60s. Uh, and, and then they were also talking about the Rittenhouse, uh, about uh, the ability to view videos and the judge going somewhere along the lines of, oh, dear God, I can't believe I have to sit through this. Um, and, and so obviously there's going to be that inherent bias. And so many people are so interconnected thanks to social media and what's happening in the news. Uh, but the moment you take that oath and you step into that courtroom, I, I think we have to turn that bias off, and I think we're not seeing that with the Rittenhouse case, uh, case right now. I think it's pretty interesting, um, based off just where it happened um, I, uh, and, and how courts work in general, because in general, jurors are supposed to be um, around the kind of subject's age, but not know too intently much about what's actually happening in the case, um, just so that they can have a full-on look on into it without having some pre-bias uh, before it. But with things like the Rittenhouse, I don't think there's any way to not have any exposure to something like that, uh, just because it was on news for probably the, the first week that it, after it had happened, just because, like you said, social media and, and the fourth. I mean, how do you keep a, a, a jury from keeping those biases as they go in now that everything that actually happens is is known yeah i think it's something that's nearly impossible to do and i think it's something that's flawed a flawed in our legal system 
uh, because everybody's going to have that inherent bias at the end of the day. Uh, well, whether that's a good bias, whether that's a bad bias, whether it's personal experience, there's going to be something there. Um, and, and so I, I think the first and major thing is sticking to the facts of the case, right? Uh, we saw with the trial of George Floyd that it was about the facts of the case. Uh, and, and, and so I think that's kind of the first major step that has to be taken in when addressing a hot topic national coverage issue uh, when it comes to the court, the court of law in cases like this. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and hopefully something can come out of this that will help um, some more digital uh, cases in the future. Uh, but for right now, we'll again just have to wait. Uh, but uh, we do have some more news, you know, that where the system kind of works with uh, Bannon and you talking about previously uh, with our QAnon uh, shaman <laughs> being subjected to it. So hopefully once we get to talk about that, we'll have a little bit more light to our justice system. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I mean, Bannon is a whole separate issue in itself, but I'm excited to get into it. not going to happen like you think it's going to happen okay it's going to be quite extraordinarily different and all i can say is strap in the war room a posse you have made this happen and tomorrow it's game day president trump's presidency his first term's ending with action and his second term's going to start with a bang okay that we can guarantee you um and so the fight's in this is a huge weekend there's so much going on behind the scenes a massive fight we're heading towards a historic day the 6th of june massive rally there's a lot happening this week people are getting revved up people are getting fired up people are getting madder as they should you and i happened to be on a call last night and you were walking people through it was so brilliant could you just walk people through what the framework is for this week a lot of tough hombres down there i saw some of them last night when we had meetings down there close there came out last night and let's say they were still up and going they were still they were still reviewing uh, their plans for the day at like one and two in the morning we've helped provide the information i think that people are jacked up we're all going to converge on that point on the sixth we're all going to converge there. We just got to impose our will. It's like in football. You have to impose your will on the opposition. We're hurtling towards an historic event on January 6th. We're hurtling to something that's going to, um, it's, it's, it's going to be complicated and it's going to be nasty. Nothing could be more turbulent than what's going on this week. We want everybody in the Mid-Atlantic region to come. Uh, you've got to be there. This is going to be historic. Remember, this is a historic week. This is like towards how the Republic fell right and became a totalitarian or authoritarian empire we're at that moment and that's what this week is are we going to affirm the massive landslide of donald j trump or are we going to turn over a constitutional republic to the forces of what did figaro say the force of darkness massive constitutional fights going on behind the scenes people don't understand you know after hours we're, we're on skyping they put these calls in lackawanna county into all these you know, patriot groups around and, and, and conservative groups who see through in the fog of war is that have clarity is to have clarity that no, January 6th was going to be the day or one of these big days and you had to converge everything down to January 6th. This is a wound that will not heal. We are hurtling towards a constitutional crisis that is going to make the impeachment look like a Sunday picnic. This is going to be a historic day. You're going to be part of history. We want as many people to get here as possible. 48 hours away from yeah, he's got one plenty, of the most he's got con consequential he's got days in American history. So that was, uh, 
you know, our friend Steve Bannon, um, who on his podcast for the entire uh, week before January 6th happened, uh, basically just kept saying it was going to be the greatest thing in history. Um, and that man was indicted on uh, this past Monday. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I mean, he was indicted for his not turning over and not working with Congress on information uh, surrounding January 6th. And, uh, I mean, we just sat there and listened for 50 seconds. I think it's pretty clear that uh, he knew what was happening, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd say so. He he blatantly talks about him talking to some of the people that were planning the event um, and some people and knowing their plans around the event um, and, and talks about it for a long time in a lot of episodes. So he definitely knew what was happening. Yeah, and I mean, Steve Bannon is not a, uh, how, how to say, uh, unknowledgeable guy. He, he knows what's happening, especially under the Trump administration. Uh, he, he was still very admired by Trump, uh, even post-fallout a little bit. And um, he, he still had a close relationship with Mark Meadows. Uh, and so when he, he talks about being in the war room, what's going to be happening in the war room, uh, I, I can promise you it wasn't speculation that he was speaking from. It was from people inside that very room itself. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've not really paid any attention to the the right extremist rhetoric that's, you know, have been happening since uh, Trump has been in presidency and since Trump has left presidency. Um, but I decided just to hop in on the war room in his podcast of this past two episodes um one to hear when he wasn't there and was going through uh the going to the fbi uh close office but this past one i listened to a little bit more because this was the moment that he got to kind of attack back um he was back hosting this one uh this past tuesday and he was on a mission to make the fbi look bad um which i think is pretty interesting to me um just based off of uh, what the two sides of political parties kind of go off of um often you know the liberal sides of media just in general can have some negative views and positive views of people like the federal police or the fbi or politicians in general um while a lot of times on the republican side is very very just one-dimensional one-sided um, and Alpha Blood for one specific thing. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it shows the downward, sp uh, downward spiral that uh, Bannon is going down. Um, and and I, I think it shows that he is on a mission to burn anything in his path. Uh, and he doesn't care what gets said about him, what people have to say about him. Uh, he wants to speak and be a messiah to these people of Donald Trump that believe that, quite frankly, that he is still president of the United States. Yeah, and even listen to just the one episode of most recent, I think I've heard that same exact phrase of still president Donald Trump, uh, I think five times, which in a 50 minute uh, podcast is kind of wild, but uh, I think the more interesting thing is that he started bringing up um, the most recent FBI whistleblower, which in my uh, beliefs isn't really much of a whistleblower, um, but 
they were just simply said that the FBI is going into uh, counterterrorism within school boards, which just means that they're looking for some domestic terrorism um, inside school boards. Do you think there's a reason for that? Honestly, I think he is the kind of person that finds something and just blows it up to anger as many people as possible. Uh, and I think this is just another prime example of that. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, he was using the fear of parents being uh, labeled terrorists, which is not the truth whatsoever. Um, we know, or you should know at this point, that the critical race theory is becoming a problem inside student board meetings all over the place. Um, and a lot of the times, uh, I think the FBI is looking for domestic terrorism because it could be people that are leading the discussions saying misinformation and are part of these really right extremist uh, patriot groups that are kind of pushing people into believing uh, stuff that doesn't really exist. And I think that's why they actually have these counterterrorism things going in it. But uh, Bannon has skewed that whistleblow talk to just say that, hey, they are coming after the parents of kids and saying that y'all are terrorists, which is a complete mislabeling. Um, and I think that's pretty interesting in itself. What about you? Yeah, uh, I mean, it started off with uh, the rhetoric around schools being that Democrats are trying to control your kids. Uh, and now it's Democrats are trying to take parents out of school. Uh, Democrats are now trying to call you terrorists. Um, and that's just not the case whatsoever. Um, the fact of the matter is it's one basic education and two minutes of research on Google, uh, will tell you everything that these guys are believing and spewing out. It's just simply false. Uh, and two, it's just a scare tactic of trying to rile these people up, um, to put this hate on the current situation and current political climate that the United States is in. Yeah, and even continuing off of that, if that he wasn't trying to put down the FBI then, um, he even mentioned that the FBI had uh, raided a, um, a local clerk, accounting clerk in Utah, I believe it was. Uh, no, Colorado, who was going after the election results. Um, I don't know if you've heard the story, but this woman named Tina Peters in one county of Colorado uh, went into her election results and made copies of the election results to see if there was any kind of, uh, you know, maladjustments to results, essentially, um, just because from her people, constituents, whatever you want to call it, she was an elected official, uh, that they said that they thought something was wrong. Basically, just because of the big lie, they said that they saw th something was wrong. Um, essentially, she uh, went and made copies before the voting uh, was taken down and uh, and came off of the actual uh, internet and the cloud as for they can get the new uh, databases up and running for the next uh, you know local or whatever elections. Um, she didn't find anything. Uh, she did have the materials, um, and her house was just raided, um, along with some others uh, that were inside the community of hers, um, and also some of those office staff members inside there as well. His whole point was that they're coming after normal folks. Um, they kept mentioning that she was a mom 
um, that she was an elected official. She had been a part of that county for years. Uh, essentially, they just kept mentioning that she was normal when, in fact, she blatantly disrespected a law and didn't find anything on the law, but was that was never mentioned once either. Uh, do you think the, the scare tactic of, you know, just making everyone seem out to get you works? Uh, yeah, I think it does work if it's done correctly. Uh, if you are speaking to a certain audience, which Bannon 100% does, um, people like you and me, we sit back and we repass it and we go, well, she broke the law, so of course she uh, got seized. And, and, and so uh, the, a lot of people don't know that. They think election results are automatically public for anyone and everyone. Um and you talk about it being updated on the website, well, it doesn't disappear forever. Um, election results are requested information, uh, and just because you're a government official doesn't mean that you can take them as you want. Uh, and, and so using these scare tactics are effective when it comes to rallying your base, but once again, if you just look at the simple facts, that's all it requires to understand that what she did was wrong. Yeah. Uh, absolutely and i mean the last thing i want to mention just because i also heard it talk about on their podcast is that this next midterm election they believe they're going to get a hundred seats and that they're going to keep those 100 seats for 100 years what do you think about that if republicans can gain a hundred seats and keep them for a hundred years um i will do whatever it takes to work for the Republican Party and make a lot of money <laughs> and um, be a great political mind and be part of probably the greatest political party in American history uh, if, if they were able to do that. Um, now, at the end of the day, Charles, uh, it's bullshit. Um, they're just saying things that are going to rally up their base and things that are going to get them motivated and get them ready to fight. Um, and... and Lord knows one thing that Bannon loves to do is fight. So here it is. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, I'm going to leave this last clip of what Bannon said outside of the uh, FBI's local office on Monday when he turned himself in. I'm telling you right now, this is going to be the misdemeanor from hell for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi, and Joe Biden. Joe Biden ordered Merrick Garland to prosecute me from the White House lawn when he got off Marine One. And we're going to do, we're going to go on the offense. We're tired of playing defense. We're going to go on the offense on this and stand by. Stand by seems awfully familiar from somebody else. But with that, we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to have a guest interviewer. So stay tuned for that. You've enjoyed listening to our words. Now enjoy reading them. Go check out our blog and in general website at capitalseedspod.wixsite.com slash website. That's capital as in capital Hill, cspod.wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash website. And we are back. I'm excited to be introducing our guest tonight. He graduated from Oregon State University with a double major in economics and finance with a minor in political science. 
Clearly he knows his stuff about politics as he boasts a little more than 80,000 followers on his TikTok. Listeners, welcome Carl Emmerich to the podcast. All right, what's up guys? Thanks for having me. So I've been following your TikTok for around three or so months now. Um, It came on my For You page, uh, which was surprising to me because it's usually just complete entertainment, dancing, music, comedy. Um, and to see news on it was pretty delightful, to be honest. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering, what made you choose TikTok and what made you choose politics? Yeah, so I was posting YouTube videos for probably like a year before I ever even heard about TikTok. Um, and then I heard about it just and you know, used it as a consumer. And I, I was actually talking to my little brother one time. And I wasn't on the you know, political side of TikTok. I was you know, seeing like Marvel stuff and whatnot. Um, but then my brother was telling me how he said, oh, all the people on TikTok, they're all like Republicans and it's all like Trump supporters and whatnot. And I was, it just like occurred to me. I was like, oh, if, you know, there's only like one side of uh, the political divide being displayed on TikTok. I was like, you know, maybe I should hop on and, you know, give some of my opinions. And I was very grateful that it resonated with a lot of people. And yeah, that's it's, uh, kind of gone from there. And uh, so what advice do you have for the average person uh, who just wants to become more knowledgeable about politics uh, but doesn't have a background or knowledge uh, like you or me or Charles have? No, of course. I, I feel like the biggest thing people can do if they, like, want to learn more is just read widely, you know, and, like, know the bias of what you're reading. You know what I mean? Because I feel like you can get good information from most sources you just have to know the bias that it's coming from. You know what I mean? If you read Bloomberg, you have to understand it's going to have a more corporate bias. You know what I mean? If you're reading Al Jazeera, you have to know the bias is there. You know what I mean? But I think that most sources you can, you'll get good information from. Yeah, I mean, obviously, at this point, um, I just watched, I don't know if you, you follow like Pod Save America or Cricket Media or any of that, but uh, I just listened to one of their past offlines with uh, Pete Hamby, who does, you know, Snapchat uh, news, and he talks about pretty much everyone giving information like this, being reporters, so-and-so. So all three of us are technically reporters now, um, and having to deal with, you know, entering bias inside uh, the information that we do give. So, I mean, how do you deal with knowing what's correct and keeping that misinformation and bias to a, a slight minimum, but still kind of having it in there? No, well, definitely, I, I definitely try to ho- hopefully have no misinformation. Um, but I mean, I guess what I would say is that like, I don't really view myself as a reporter. You know, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I, I definitely view myself as like a, a commentary person. I, I don't think there's ever any video that I've posted that hasn't been like commentary involved in what I'm talking about. You know, it's, it's centered around the news, but it's like, you know, kind of my opinion on the news. And I think that that's how a lot of people do consume their news though, is they view it through commentary. And that's where I think that just like understanding the bias is important. I, I think everybody has a bias. I think that unbiased news is almost impossible to have. Um, and so just the more useful thing is to, I think that if you're on the reporting side of things, just be open about like where you stand. You know what I mean? I think that people who, even if they're incredibly far right, they could still take value from like my videos just as long as they know where I'm coming from. And so you talked about that bias a little bit and how everybody's gonna have that inherent bias. And you talked about how your brother um, was kind of the one who got you on TikTok when it was mostly uh, conservative politics being discussed on it. Uh, And so obviously it can be a little intimidating to sit there and talk about a liberal point of view on TikTok. Uh, And and so what was kind of your mindset when you first got started? And uh, also what was kind of your mindset when you started to blow up a little bit? I mean, it was definitely, I mean, first of all, let me just say that, like, uh, with the live streams, those have just, like, really taken off, and people have really enjoyed those, and so I'm, I'm very thankful that those have resonated with so many people, that was very surprising, honestly. 
Um, but it definitely wasn't like intimidating, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Like once I got onto TikTok, I, I experienced pretty quickly that there are, you know, obviously some pretty big, uh, I guess you can call them left wing creators on the app. Um, but, you know, at the time, there were people like uh, Nick Videos, the Republican Hype House was really big and stuff. Um, but I think, you know, a big part of it is just, OK, there's a stitch feature on TikTok. So responding to those videos, trying to give the other side of the argument. I think that's where it just became really important. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I know for sure that it's kind of been a talk inside the media in general that the Republican side has gotten a, a lot of money inside of their their media anywhere really um from radio stations to um youtubes so uh, I, I was wondering you know just dealing with having the leftists kind of watch your videos you also have some of those ones that are on the right i mean how do you deal with the comments and the feedback that you get because i'm sure there's a couple that have not been so nice and i have seen some of your comment sessions as well oh oh it's a it's a complete mess i, I mean for me personally i feel like you just you can't take it personally I don't know anyone that would like say something mean in like a comment section is just not like something I take super seriously. Now, when it's like a critique of like the like the substance of the video, I do take those seriously. You know, I do actually like really I try to respond to comments a lot, especially ones that disagree. But when it's like, you know, personal stuff like, oh, you look stupid, like, you know, I, stuff like that. I just don't take it very seriously. And I mean, we spoke earlier about how many followers you have on uh, TikTok alone. Uh, and I mean, we're we're happy to have you uh, as a guest here on just our fifth episode of uh, Capital C's. And uh, so, what was kind of the moment for you that you realized, like, this is my niche. This is something that I can be successful with uh, and have an impact on the uh, social media world. I mean, if I'm being completely honest, like the very first like TikTok I posted, it was about like Medicare for all. Actually, I posted like one before that had nothing to do with politics. But I posted one, the first one relating to politics was a Medicare for all video. And it got like more views than like anything I'd ever posted on YouTube. And I was like, oh, I don't know what the what way TikTok's algorithm works, but it works in a way where like you can reach more people. And I was like, okay, this is maybe where I should be putting you know more focus towards because ideally, you know, you're putting this stuff out there. You want to be able to hopefully change minds, reach people. And TikTok, I feel like, I don't like I said I don't know how their algorithm works, but in my experience, it's a really good way at reaching new people. And the new live stream function I think is also really cool because you get to like in real time have conversations with people, and I, I just I really enjoy that. So I mean, with that being said, is your was your main goal in in audience uh, seeking was it your younger generation, uh, people who were independents, or maybe some of the older users that were, you know, graduating college that are getting on TikTok? What were you looking to find when you started doing your TikToks? I mean, it's, for me, it's always been about, like, hopefully either changing people's minds or if there are people that already agree with me, providing them with arguments that they can use to hopefully change people's minds that don't agree with them. You know what I mean? So either they're taking an argument that they've heard me use and they think it was successful and so they you know, use it in the conversation later or people that just don't disagree with me and hopefully giving them a perspective and they feel like it's, uh, I don't know, where I'm coming from a good place. I try to be very uh, principled with a lot of my critiques and I, I hope sometimes it helps uh, move people over. And in a time of decisiveness, um, especially in a post-Trump era, uh, how, how necessary and how tough do you feel it is to have that critique and it be taken um, seriously or, and not just combatively? Oh, no, I, I think it's super important. I think that, like, that, that was a big thing, I think, under Obama is that you saw a lot of uh, people, you know, 2008, people were really excited about Obama. They thought he was going to be you know, this real progressive and everything. 
And I think that by 2012, I mean, most people could see that that, that just wasn't the case. I mean, with the expansion of the drone war and whatnot. Um, but unfortunately, I, I do feel like the, you know, the left wing movement in the U.S., I think, broadly speaking, kind of went to sleep a little bit under Obama. And I think that, you know, it woke up a little bit under Trump. And I think that it's just so important that that remains active under Biden and that critique stays there because Biden is not a good president. At least that, that's my opinion. I think he's an improvement from where Trump was, but he is so, so far from what we currently need. And I think that that like active criticism is super important. Yeah, I, I mean, I appreciate that. So, I mean, going away from, the, you know, the TikTok side of things, but more into the political aspect, what made you as a person uh, start getting really involved in, in news and in politics? Yeah, I, I think it was, you know, I, I wasn't really a very political person before I was uh, graduated from high school. But then once I graduated, I started I don't know, reading more things, getting into it. Uh, the 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign definitely resonated a lot with me. I was still kind of finding myself politically at that time. I, I went to like a Gary Johnson rally, for example. Okay. Um, but, <laughs> I, but then, I, the, like I said, the, the 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign, that was something I think the election of AOC, I think was also, uh, I don't know, it's just something worth noting. I wouldn't call it very formative for me. But then in terms of like thinkers, I mean, Noam Chomsky has probably had the single biggest impact on like my political viewpoints. So, Carl, uh, you cover pretty much anything and everything political on your TikToks. Uh, so I have to ask, what do you think is the single most important issue facing Americans today? I mean, I think that, I mean, just to say, like, I mean, from, like, the way that I look at it, I look at it as, like, the world, like, what is, like, the biggest issue facing the world? I mean, I, we can't get more specific to America if you'd like. But I think the answer is probably the same. Uh, I do think the threat of climate change is very, very real. Uh, I think it's something that would be a lot of concern of. There's pretty overwhelming consensus that if uh, net zero emissions aren't reached by 2050 we're going to see some irreversible tipping points that are going to have some pretty disastrous effects um but then also i think that you know it, it's not always in the news as much but i do think that the threat of nuclear conflict is a really big thing just because of the disastrous effects it could have on humanity i think that what we saw under the trump administration was a lot of pullbacks on the different arms controls uh, that had been set by previous administrations. The first one that comes to mind is like Trump withdrawing from the INF treaty. I, I think that that was a, a pretty bad move and it was not, not like a lefty agreement by any stretch of the imagination. It was signed by you know Ronald Reagan. Um, but just stuff like that, I think it is still, you know, we're not in the Cold War anymore. Maybe people aren't thinking about it as much, but I do think that the threat of nuclear war is something that should be in people's minds and we should be working towards nuclear disarmament. For yeah. sure, and, and I think we're seeing a lot of progress uh, going back to climate change we, we've seen a lot of progress already just from the cop 26 uh here over the past week and a half and uh so i, I mean what specifically would you like to see in terms of climate change uh from the biden administration or moving forward from a global uh, community yeah well i feel like that that last part is the most important is that you know any effort to effectively deal with climate change it has to be global um, I, I do think there was some promising, you know, who, who knows how much teeth this has, but I know that uh, the report came out today that John Kerry, apparently it, it his uh, speech at the COP26 summit, um, that the U.S. and China has reached some sort of agreement where they're going to be, you know, uh, diplomatically working to fight climate change. Like I said, who, who knows, like, how big this is going to be, but that, that's definitely promising. Um, definitely a sharp reversal from what we saw, you know, under the Trump administration, things like, like withdrawing from the Paris Accords. Um, but I do think it does also bring kind of the question of like, we need to be aware that if there's a change in administration, 
this stuff can be reversed pretty quickly, like what we saw with the Trump administration. We, we thought that we saw some steps forward under Obama, and then we saw a lot of it was pulled back. And so I think we definitely need to be looking for more sustainable solutions. But I do think a Green New Deal in the U.S. is necessary. Um, I think that. But yeah. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, and especially if you've been following the COP26 and you kind of heard about some of the offset programs that's been going around, which is, you know, essentially just a way for countries to uh, get over with uh, doing their regular things and saying that they weren't going to do extra things just because they needed something to put on the paper. I mean, how do you feel about the new offset programs? I I think that, like, I don't know. I think a lot of it is... Um... I mean, it's kind of like what you alluded to. Some of the proposals that are put forward just aren't as... Like, we just don't see the urgency that I think we should have. I, I think that the COP26, in a lot of ways, is just kind of symbolic. You know, we don't see, like, really, like, meaningful proposals being put forward. Not to dismiss things that are being put forward. But I, I don't know. I, I would like to see more urgency on the behalf of world leaders and dealing with this, uh, what I think is fair to call a crisis. Yeah, 100%. And how, how the kind of transitioning that to a U.S. policy standpoint, uh, me and Charles in our last week's podcast, we ha we had a really long discussion about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, kind of her her points that she made for her reason not for voting for the infrastructure bill and that it didn't do enough for climate change and that she understood that BBB was necessary, um, but still voted against the infrastructure bill. So do you think that we have to take this, we need everything right now immediately approach? Or do you think we're kind of in the position where we need to take the wins when we can get them? Well, I think the problem with, uh, j just from a strategy standpoint, I, I don't think that passing the infrastructure bill was the right move because I think they, they should have kept it tied to the reconciliation bill. Like that was what they were saying the whole time. We're not we're not going to vote on them you know, uh, individually. We'll vote on them together. Um, I, I think that was the right strategy. And I wish the Democrats had held the line on that more. But they just, I mean, basically got pushed around by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. We saw Build Back Better got stripped down to like bare minimum, and then they still ended up voting for the infrastructure bill. So and now who knows what the place of the reconciliation bill? So just like from a strategy standpoint, not very happy with how things have gone. Um, but I, I get like the more of the heart of your question was like, okay, do we go with this incrementalist standpoint where like we try, you know, some progress is better than none? Um, I, I think in the specific of the infrastructure bill, I, I think that the progressives that voted against it made the right decision. I don't know. What do you guys think on that? I, I, did you guys have a lot of controversy about that? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, I was on. We we have a certain segment that we do called uh, Hiller Valley, which I'll ask you yours at the end, just to uh, have you kind of um, give some input as well. But uh, essentially, it's just uh, who we believe uh, in politics world um, did really good that past week or did really bad that past week. Um, and for Nathan, his was AOC on the Valley, and for AOC was my heel. So essentially, I'm on your side. I, I do believe that with the, the vote for no was probably correct. Um, I think the real reason why she was doing that was because there's no telling when BBB is going to get passed now. Uh, there's no uh, kind of guideline or timeline that really can hold uh, the rest of the Democratic Party, when, when I mean you know, mansion and cinema to voting for this inside a actual good time period. Um, now that that infrastructure bill is through, you have a lot of things to talk about, but a lot of those things aren't really, you know, seen all the way through until BBB is also passed. So, you know, having one half of a, a whole bill is not exactly the best way to merit uh, your democratic success. So I think AOC had the right idea. Uh, maybe her other five um, progressives didn't really say or do enough with the rest of the caucus to, you know, demand some attention for it. 
but I do believe it was on the right path. Well, just to... The, or sorry. Uh, and see, I kind of took a pessimistic side of view uh, on it uh, because I, I agree. Like, I, I understand why AOC voted against it. Uh, but at the same time, it's politics. We never know what's going to happen in recon reconciliation, especially in the time of Joe Manchin being the most powerful man in America. Um, that I, I think it's just it's good that we made progress. Could it have been more? Yes. But I, I think we need anything and everything we can get right now. So that, that's kind of my explanation as to it. No, I, I mean, I don't don't get me wrong. I, I get that standpoint. For me, it's like I, I find it really unfortunate that like all the, the spotlight is being put on the you know six Democrats that voted against it. When like I, I feel like the real pressure should be put on Pramila Jayapal and the you know the rest of the progressive caucus that broke from what their original proposition was. I don't know. I feel like they were in a position of strength in negotiations and they were holding, you know, fairly steady on it. But I don't know, they, it was Who's going to break first, Joe Manchin or the Progressive Caucus? And and unfortunately, you know, we saw the Progressive Caucus uh, break first. And I, I think that, I don't know, I, I would like to see in these small windows where we do have like some leverage to get things done. Because we got to remember, I mean, unless there's reform to the filibuster, I mean, reconciliation is really one of the only ways to really get stuff done in this current makeup of Congress. And I think that unless Democrats can get something like big through that's going to materially change people's lives, because the economy's not doing good right now. Um, I think the midterms are going to go really, really poorly. Maybe we can get into that next if you guys want, but like, uh, I don't know. I, I'm not looking forward to the, where the midterms are going to go with this current, uh, uh, how things are currently going. Yeah, 100%. We've uh, just, especially in the last episode and the episode before that, we've talked about the previous gubernatorial races in New Jersey and Virginia, just because those are on a national spotlight in a way um, that is not great for Democrats. And it has exactly to do with what we're talking about now. Um, you know, it's very hard for uh, parties that are in power to win midterm elections like the gubernatorial or uh, Senate seats or House. So uh, we've been kind of focusing on how we make the Democrats look great. And really the only thing we have right now that's moving forward is those bills. So having them pass them are absolutely uh, substantial to what we can do inside 2022. But, I mean, have you been paying attention to the gubernatorial races? What were your thoughts on uh, McAuliffe losing and uh, for Murphy barely squeaking it out? I mean, I think that McAuliffe just ran a bad race, in my opinion. I think he got dragged into the muck talking about critical race theory in school, which is, I don't know. I mean, it's stuff like that. I would just, I would laugh that stuff out because most of what, like, the Republicans are claiming is happening is just so far from reality. I would just be like, I, he should have focused on just bread and butter issues like the economy and just like how to he, he can materially impact people's lives but saying stuff that like i forget what the quote was he said that like um parents shouldn't have a say in like what their kids are taught or something yeah, like that he yeah. said something like that about, about, about and, a month like, in, in, in and uh youngkin ran with it on pretty much every ad he had left <laughs> oh exactly and like i get what he was trying to say but that was terrible framing. Like that, that was awful. It was so bad. Like I think that that would be like you know I'm a big supporter of Medicare for all. I don't know if you guys like Medicare for all, but like um that would be like saying like oh I don't want people to be able to choose what kind of healthcare they get. You know like that's that's horrible framing. Like even if like what you're trying to say is like actually good. You know what I mean? Like I don't know. I think that was McAuliffe ran a bad race, and I think we saw the pretty clear sign of that. Yeah, I mean, me and Charles, we, we did a really deep dive into it, and I, and I remember, I said this in the last episode, but I texted Charles about three or four days after the race was called, and I, I was just, been, I was baffled on how a Democrat in Virginia loses to a Trump Republican on the issue of education. Um, and, and I think it's just a, a telling story of how Democrats are kind of scared to address 
simple things, right? Uh, I mean, how, what's your thoughts on that? Oh, no. I mean, I, I, I completely agree. I think that, I don't know. I, I just feel like the spotlight was put on the wrong issues when it came to education. I don't know. Instead of, like, I mean, McCall should have been talking about things like expanding access to education, things that, things that would really, you know, help people. Um, and I do think that, like, that's the thing. If you go through his platform, it's not like he didn't have, like, good things that he was theoretically running on. He just chose not to focus on those things. And I feel like that's a, a pretty big problem. Yeah, completely. Um, but so... a, little, a little fun fact I was going to tell you guys, it just because just, I think it's worth referencing. I, don't get me wrong. I think it's still indicative of you know where we're at right now. But um, every Virginia gubernatorial race since Carter, um, except for one time, has gone the opposite way of what the presidential outcome was. So if a Democrat won the presidency, a Republican won the Virginia gubernatorial race and vice versa. Every single time since Carter, except for one time. So I don't know. Are we seeing just a continuing trend of that or are we seeing something greater? I think it's probably something greater, but it's an interesting like statistic. Yeah, it was interesting. We, we brought it up in the in the last podcast um, and, and actually pretty funny that uh, McAuliffe was the one to actually win in 2013 to break that uh, kind of record. But uh, like I said, I mean, I want to finish with uh, a little bit of Hill and Valley for yourself, um, just to kind of get your input on something that we usually do on the show. Um, so if you want to give uh, your Valley, you know, from this past week, someone uh, in politics and that didn't do very well um, and your reasoning for it and then your heel of somebody who did well, that, that'd be great. All right. All right. That's a that's a good question. Let's see. Who is someone that did? Oh, I got to think of someone that did good. We'll, we'll start with someone that did bad. And so this is probably not the direction you were thinking, but like it was, maybe this is interesting because I just read the piece today. But uh, so Mohammed bin Salman in um, uh, Saudi Arabia, there was this, this great piece in The Intercept talking about how a, a lot of the crisis we're seeing right now in this country in regards of inflation and just increasing energy prices is potentially linked to Mohammed bin Salman wanting to make the U.S. pay as a result of the pressure Biden was putting on him in regards to Jamal Khashoggi and with the withdrawal of some of the support of what they're doing in Yemen. And so I think that just to tie it back into what we we're doing before um, with when regards to climate change, I, I think that this is a sign that we should be like shifting away from these fossil fuels and we, we don't want to be dependent on Saudi Arabia for you know, uh, our energy. You know, we don't want like big human rights abusers to be able to put this much pressure on our country um, to where we might potentially start rearming them again in the offensive portion of the Yemen war. And so, um, yeah, I think uh, Mohammed bin Salman would definitely be one of my, I don't know, what's the bad one? Is it Valley? Valley's valley, the bad yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, okay, he's, he's my Valley. Um, um, and then Hill would probably be I don't know. I, I give credit to the six uh, Democrats that voted against the uh, the infrastructure bill. I think that it you know is a symbolic vote. You can call it virtue signaling, but I, I think it was the it was the right decision. Gotcha. Well, I appreciate you being here, Carl. You are our very first guest. Um, hopefully, we can get some more of it in the future. Um, I appreciate the TikTok. Um, if you want to go ahead and shout out your socials just for our listeners, um, so they can go ahead and check that out as well. No, yeah, of course. Yeah, you guys can find me on any platform at Carl underscore Emmerich. It's K-A-R-L underscore E-M-M-R-I-C-H. And yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. I hope this, uh, I hope you guys, your guys' podcast really takes off. Hey, we appreciate you, man. All right, you guys have a good one. And we're back. Um, so we're going to get right into our Capitol Hill or Hidden Valley. You just heard uh, Emmerich's uh, Capitol Hill and Valley, um, just something that we'll probably do for most of our interviewers. But 
This week, for my valley, I'm going with Kamala Harris and staff. Not so much has been talked about regarding Vice President Harris, but CNN found a way to make an article about it anyway. In fact, CNN's article gets lengthy from several anonymous leaks from both Biden's and Harris's office, claiming there is some animosity between the two. Harris's staff said she is ill-prepared for the situation she is facing and would like to have more of a role in the White House, while on Biden's side, we are seeing reports that Harris isn't getting as involved as she should be. I don't necessarily think this is the end times of the two, obviously, but I definitely don't believe the president and vice president's office should be squabbling through the press. Nathan, what about your valley? Yeah, so my valley of the week goes out to the entire Wyoming uh, GOP, uh, who voted no longer to recognize Liz Cheney as a Republican. Uh, Cheney has been quite outspoken against Donald Trump and serves as the vice chair of the January 6th investigative committee. Uh, and is unmoved by her own state's remarks, claiming that it's laughable for her to be considered anything other than a committed conservative Republican. Now, while I'm all for sitting back and watching the GOP internal war play itself out, I will be quick out to call something truly idiotic. Now, let's just state the facts. Cheney sided with 93% of Trump's policy matters. She has an A rating from the NRA, and she has 96 approval ranking from the Heritage Foundation who is rather conservative themselves, to say the least. Republicans claim to be the party against cancel culture, yet find themselves doing anything in their power to cancel someone who is quite literally the embodiment of classical conservatism. If the Wyoming GOP doesn't paint a picture of the Republican ideology in 2021, Charles, I really don't know what does. So, my hope for the week would be the 13 Republicans that voted for the infrastructure bill because they are getting hammered right now with way too much. So shout out to Roy Blunt, Richard Burr, Shelley Moore, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Kevin Kramer, Michael Crapo, Deb Fisher, Lindsey Graham, Charles E. Grassley, John Hoven, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, James Rich, Mitt Romney, Dan Sullivan, and Tom Tillis. Uh, all 13 of these, for the most part, have been going through uh, pretty much hell um, with some death threats from some of them. Um, while others are just getting backlash from the Republican Party in general. Um, for some of these, you can very obviously see why they needed an infrastructure bill because it is vastly needed, um, just because these are places that don't see a lot of money. Um, and this money will particularly help inside traveling um, and just tourism in general, just because a lot of these places also have places that people want to go. Um, but I think is necessary that they voted how they did um obviously it's necessary just because uh we saw some of the progressives that voted no um so again uh shout out to them for taking the blunt force of um, a lot of unnecessary uh, loud what about your hill yeah so my hill of the week is going to go out to michelle Wu, who is the new mayor of the city of boston uh, Wu, an Asian-American, broke barriers, becoming both the first woman and the first person of color to lead the city in the role. Uh, in her first full day as mayor, Wu paused the removal of people living in tents, delivering her remarks in English, Mandarin, and Spanish in an effort for having a multilingual outreach to be part of every phase of decision-making in the city. Uh, not only did Wu address the homeless situation, but rode a public transportation and made a stop at CVS before walking into City Hall, Making one thing clear, she's maintaining her commitment to get City Hall out of city, a city Hall and truly make Boston a city for everyone. And I can tell you, Boston won't be her last stop. 
And just like that, we are done with this week's episode with virtually no idea what we really have in store for the next week. My guess is more long-term Democrats dropping from re-election efforts. My guess is that Joe Biden is probably going to pardon a turkey. Maybe I'm right. Maybe Nathan's right. We will soon find out, and we'll be sure to tell you what we found. I want to thank you all for continuing to listen, and a thanks to our guest, Carl, for joining us today. Once again, I'm Charles Greenlee. And I'm Nathan Crockleton. See you next week on Capital C's. This podcast was brought to you by the creative efforts of Charles Greenlee and Nathan Crunkleton. To stay up to date with our upcoming podcast episodes and when they will be updating, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Capital C's Pod. That's capital, like Capitol Hill, C-S-Pod. Thanks for listening, and we will be back with more from The Hill.